what I am. I am my own special creation. So, come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. And welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to the Next Best Theater podcast, our special theater-focused subsidiary of the Next Best Picture podcast. And happy June, happy of what should have been Pride Weekend and what is Pride Month, everyone. Uh, we are celebrating Pride as best we can here at Next Best Theater. It's been a, a weird month to be having Pride, but we decided that this was as good a time as any without the Tonys to devote some time to some LGBTQ plus theater. I'm very excited to talk about this along with my co-host, Cody Derricks. Hi, I love that you said subsidiary. I really love being a part of this LLC here at NBT. (laughs) (laughs) So fancy. We all enjoy the wonderful products that NBP has brought into our lives. (laughs) (laughs) And today, Cody and I are joined by Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Casey Lee Clark. Hello. Lauren LaMagna. Happy Pride, everyone. And Mr. Michael Schwartz. Hello, everyone. Happy Pride. Happy Pride, indeed. Um, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, I am really, really excited to talk about um, some Pride Month gay theater stuff with you all. Um because it's been a little bit of an obsession of mine going back to college when I randomly had to read Angels in America as a play for the first time and then sort of devoured anything else that the my college library had <laughs> that was a gay play. And yeah, um, happy pride. Shall we get right down to it? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think I want to say like, Part of the reason that we're doing this episode is um, not only because it's Pride, but we've wanted to do a LGBT uh, theater episode of some sort for a while. I mean, it's not a shocking statement to say <laughs> the history of the um, of uh, queer people in America and the history of American theater are oftentimes intrinsically linked. It's, you know, a kind of a, almost a symbiotic relationship in a way. And I think more than any other art form, it's been one of the more... Um, I hate the word tolerance, mm-hmm. so whatever, but tolerance um, <laughs> to queer people, not just at, 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 on the creative side, but also on the story side. I mean, like, we're going to talk about some really early stuff here. Obviously, that's, you know, uh, some of the first representations of queer people in uh, mass media. And I think uh, doing an episode of the, this during Pride is great. And we want to say that this is not the only time we'll be talking about this kind of stuff. No. This is, <laughs> is going to be an you. overview. <laughs> no. So if we don't cover anything in this episode, it's not because we don't value it or think it's an important part of the uh, queer theater lexicon. It's just we kind of wanted to do a 
humongous, absolutely mega broad episode here. So we're definitely going to be covering other stuff in the future. So don't feel sad if your favorite uh, little gay thing is not mentioned here. And like the the history of gay drama and musicals is very long and very wide. And a lot of it is under known and underseen. So if you have a play that you've come across that is your favorite, you know, let us know and spread the word because uh, the playwrights could use it. <laughs> yeah, I like what you said there about it being underseen because, again, and you know, I was just espousing the tolerance of theater, but queer artists still had to hide in the shadows in the closet. I mean, you know, who yep. didn't know about Cole Porter being gay? I'm sure at the time, but it, it was not acceptable in the mainstream or I'm sure even to most mainstream theater people. So it's a really interesting, um, I said symbiotic already, but kind of like tentative relationship mm-hmm. uh, that's been that's uh, been between the community and the theater. Yeah, and it has generally been something that has come up in times of great crisis or great social unrest. It always seems to pop up. So hope maybe we'll be entering another uh, queer theater renaissance coming up soon. Who knows? Um, but okay, so let's get um, down to and so gays in plays have obviously been Ooh. around. I know, right? I'm a poet. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Give him the Pulitzer. It's my favorite Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> gays in plays. <laughs> I can just see that Dr. Seuss book. Oh my god. Um, okay. So anyway, gays have been around in drama as long as there has been drama. It's just that often they kind of had to hide a bit, or it is something that we sort of read into things now. Like everyone knows that in the time of Shakespeare, uh, men played all the parts because women were not allowed on stage. It was considered indecent. And that is a a theme that will be running throughout this episode. Um, It was considered indecent for women to be on stage. So men were playing women all the time. And we look back on that now and think like, oh, that's, I mean, that doesn't happen a lot today that men play women's roles and it adds a bit of subversiveness or would today. But at the time that was normal. So it didn't really kind of mean anything in terms of representation. It may have for little queerlings um, of the 1400s and 1500s, but I, I don't think so because it was such an established convention. Yeah, and I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about Shakespeare being queer himself, yeah. and that does require a lot of reading between the lines of mostly his sonnets. Um, I I kind of personally, I look at the um, men playing women, and I don't really view that as necessarily like indicative of uh, queer thoughts at the time, but it is, uh, you know, obviously something that would be embraced by the queer community later in the world. Um, I don't know as well as like scholars, obviously, but that's kind of uh, the way I look at it. Yeah. I mean, and it, it doesn't queerness, like actually in something that we have to engage with, with the theater doesn't really come up until the late, 1800s, early 1900s, when Oscar Wilde was writing. Yeah, because I'm even, I'm just doing some, I, my cursory research, I couldn't really find much in turn, in um, Greek and Roman dramas. I mean, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously those um, 
cultures, especially Rome, were, you know, very open in terms of their sexuality, whether for whatever reason, uh, whether it was, you know, overt or not. And I'm kind of surprised that that didn't trickle over into the the, at least maybe the plays we know about. You know, I'm sure there maybe were things destroyed. Who knows? Yeah, it's very possible that, you know, there were some plays that have been lost to time. But as far as I know, there is not um, a a a Greek or Roman play of the old days that involves two men in a romantic or like that kind of cohabitating relationship right i mean you can read into the iliad what you yes, will about right. Achilles and patroclus but that's you know a different story exactly and it's a lot of that sort of like um soldiers or brothers in arms who will say things that we may attribute more to a romantic relationship than a brotherly relationship, but at the time that was the language. Yeah. Um, and it may have meant that they had romantic feelings for each other, or it may not have. Um, we we don't really know. I like to think they were all kissing, but that I, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's roommates. better that way. <laughs> They're really oh my good God, friends. They were roommates. <laughs> those those <laughs> barracks when those when those barracks are bouncing, don't come and knock. Them, let me tell you. Um, (laughs) so yeah, and the, and the other interesting thing is like, you get to Oscar Wilde, which is the first, like, we can definitely point to and say, gay, um, playwright, there's not really a lot of gayness in his published work because it was considered indecent. And this is the man who was put on trial for gross indecency for, you know, his philanderings about town. But it's interesting because... I I was thinking about this recently and it <laughs> it's a little crazy but go with me like um we talk about you know the the Wachowskis making Cloud Atlas which is about identity and how they were dealing with their own identities as human beings and as, as trans women and a masterpiece by the way um, a total masterpiece I love that movie um but that the subject of the importance of being earnest is also identity <laughs> and discovering who you really are. So it, it, Wilde was definitely working with queer themes, but in not a very queer context, except for right. You I'm know, sure camp. you know contemporaries <laughs> of the time, as you had to do all the way up to the 60s and 70s and even beyond um, 1960s and 70s, uh, you have to read between the lines. You have to look at the subtext and uh, assumptions and innuendo and derive from that your queer reading where you can. Yes, exactly. And it basically comes down to we first start seeing gays or gays in theater being a thing in the 1920s when it was still, um, you know, gay and lesbian relationships were not allowed to be shown in the theater. It was considered indecent. And thus, we have the subject of Paula Vogel's play, Indecent, which is about a play called The God of Vengeance, which was shut down and put on trial for indecency in the 1920s. Um, mm-hmm. or, and, or maybe it's a little after that. But it, it's some early in the 1900s. I know that much. Yeah, it's like around <laughs> there. I, we, I took a queer theater class my senior year of college, and that was, like I think, the first play that we talked about. We went chronological. Yeah, it had such a sh- sadly short run on Broadway, and and I missed it, and I was very sad. But um, 
yeah, the God of Vengeance is was the first thing to really be put on trial, and the actors were put on trial for doing obscene acts on stage in public. How dare they? How dare they show two women lying together um, or something like that? <laughs> because, because the times, because the times. Um, and then we get a little further on and we have sort of more strongly inferred relationships uh, like The Children's Hour by Lillian Hellman with uh, two women accused of a homosexual relationship and one of them who might actually be homosexual. And the second one is eh, more iffy. And uh, then... Right, and if you've only seen the film, the film was basically neutered of all those uh, Mm -hmm. those, uh, plot (laughs) details, essentially. Which is sad. And, but that's, again, like that's what Hollywood, Hollywood has been more conservative than Broadway always. (laughs) Um, then in 1953, there was Tea and Sympathy by Robert Anderson, which is about a male private school student who is accused of homosexual acts. Um, and that was a big deal, a big controversy, and I think it was actually also made into a movie at some point. I don't remember uh, yes, when, Yes, in 1956. Yeah, so again, not that much longer, and again, kind of uh, neutered. And then we get to... Uh, in the 50s, Tennessee Williams, who there were a lot of gay male writers working by now at the time. But um, the others of Wilson uh, Williams's contemporaries, like Edward Albee and William Inga, were not as explicit in dealing with their homosexuality as Williams was. Although, if you watch the movies of his plays, you would never know. Right. I mean, I'm <laughs> thinking particularly of Cat on a Haunted Roof. roof. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yep. laughs> um, where the big one of the biggest internal struggles for the um, the main character, whose name is leaving my brain right now. If somebody Brick. knows it, that'd be helpful. Maggie? His name is Brick. Brick. Oh, Brick, Brick, and then Maggie's yeah. little wife. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of inference about a um, possible uh, homosexual relationship he had when he was younger, and it's all inferred, but fairly obvious if you know if you if you know what you're looking for, I'd say. But not even. I mean, it's like it's it's not even subtext. It's part of the play, um, and obviously that mm-hmm. is not in the movie. And a lot. It's At interesting. All. A lot of these queer adjacent uh, works in the '50s involve somebody usually being accused of uh, homosexuality mm-hmm. for obvious reasons at the time period. And I think it probably struck playwrights as something that is um, a, a ripe subject for dramatization, whether because it would be scandalous and thus would get eyes on it, or it's if the um, creators themselves were queer, something to kind of derive sympathy. Yeah. Um, or as a, another meta commentary on the McCarthy era, like the sure. Crucible. <laughs> Um, yeah, and and of course, then there's the the big one as far as um, uh, Tennessee Williams is concerned, which is uh, suddenly last summer, which it's that's actually a weirdly faithful movie version of the play. Like they pretty much just don't say the words, but it's right in there that <laughs> he died because he was going after those little boys. Um, and then we get into the tragic gaze of the theater. Um, but those were the the big you know, texts of pretty much until the the 60s and 70s. 
and it didn't really – queer theater as we know it today did not really explode until um, the first of the uh, major works that we want to talk about today, which is um, Mark Crowley's The Boys in the Band, which was produced in 1968. It is the first play that we are aware of that actually used gay men and – all gay men in the story. Right. Or the first one, at least that, you know, people actually saw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there may I have been some. It. Yeah. It, it was the first one. It was definitely the first one in, on Broadway. Well, it never made to Broadway until the most recent revival. Uh, but it was, you know, the, the first in the, the major uh, New York theater scene for sure. Yeah. It played off Broadway in yeah, a year before Stonewall. Yeah. A year before Stonewall. And that's one of the things that made it a big deal. The other thing that made it a big deal is that it was adapted into a feature film in 1970 directed by William Friedkin. So it premiered on stage right before Stonewall and then had its movie the year after. It's a fascinating uh, case study. And I'm going to say, has, did anyone see the recent revival on Broadway? Did anyone shell out the money? <laughs> I haven't, but we're all going to have the opportunity to this fall because the cast is doing the film for Netflix. So exciting. Yes, they are. Yeah, I didn't see that production, but I did see the 1970 film, the William Friedkin mm-hmm. film. Yeah, it it's very much a... It became, I think, because it was the first big, um, big play about gay men, it became sort of a prototypical gay story. Um, it is about a man named Harold who is celebrating his birthday and is um, upset that he does not look as beautiful as he once did and believes that he can't attract um, younger men and all of his uh, friends who come over to celebrate his birthday, including um, a prostitute, one of Harold's birthday presents. Yeah. It, it feels like a very, um, I, what I imagine would be, um, not shocking to actual gay men of the time period. It, it feels very lived in and real. I haven't uh, seen it myself either, but from like my impressions of it is that it is both kind of revolutionary in its time period, but also very much of its time and place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is. I, I, I didn't see the revival, but I did see the movie and I hear that the movie is mostly faithful uh, to the play. And it 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 really is. It's kind of like Sex in the City ish. It's just you know it six is, yeah. six guys mm-hmm. just sitting around talking about you know their lives and their relationships and who they fucked and if they're gonna fuck and won't you please fuck me and <laughs> <laughs> because that I mean I think and it it's interesting because there's a lot of talk in these plays about you know fucking enough that would give you the impression that that is all gay men do. And while that's not, not true, um, it, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's there to say that, you know, this is all gay men care about. I, I personally think that it's mostly there to constantly remind the audience that these are men who are in love with men. 
Right. Yeah, and again, yeah. I feel like that's meant to shock a little yeah. bit, but also to be kind of like, this is how we talk. <laughs> no, yeah, it was meant definitely to shock the audience. I haven't seen the revival, but I've read, you know, some of it and I've read um, reactions to it. And I, what was so cool about it is that it did just show gay men being gay men. And that does show the power of representation and seeing you on stage is a powerful thing. And that's one of the first breakout moments for queer theater is that we did see these guys and they actively said the word gay and they actually talked about just them being themselves. And I think that's a powerful thing. And that really started this massive chain reaction. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but this is a preview of our full podcast for episode 30 of the Next Best Theater podcast, part of the Next Best Picture podcast umbrella. In order to get the full episode, you will have to head on over to Patreon where for $1 minimum a month, you will get the rest of this show, plus other exclusive podcast content from us as well. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.